Please turn your Bibles with me this morning to the shortest book in the Old Testament. Obadiah, Obadiah. Just one, cha- just one chapter. And I read, The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against Alpha battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the cleft of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though you nest, your nest is set among the stars, from, where, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, old Timan, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of, your, of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. All nations, As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain... So all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they have never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their their own possessions. The house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and Consume them, and there should be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, 
and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanite as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. If there's a phrase or sentence that aids our comprehension of the overarching narrative the Bible weaves across its books, it will be, it will be that the glory of the triune God in salvation through judgment. I mean, this very phrase also serves as the title of a book that Jim Hamilton wrote. There he demonstrates that the glory, that God's glory in salvation through judgment stands as the theological focal point of the Bible. This panoramic uh, view enriches the experience of reading the Bible as we behold wondrous things from Scripture. Now, despite the various narratives and contexts and time periods uh, that we see in Scripture, we can see that consistently all throughout Scripture, we see God's manifestation, God's glory being showed forth in salvation through judgment. And this reveals to us a cohesive narrative that shows to us the entire Bible in one singular story. This narrative is both historical and also eschatological in nature. And such is the essence of the book of Obadiah. It encapsulates this perspective. It shows us how that God displayed his glory in salvation through judgment. So Obadiah can serve to us as a microcosm of the Bible itself. The book of Obadiah, much like other biblical texts, helps us to navigate the present that we are in now by directing our attention to look back to the beginning, highlighting God's continuous work throughout history. But concurrently, Obadiah helps us to look forward, to look at God's ultimate plan, how it unfolds and how it accumulates in Christ and how all will be at his feet. So Obadiah, on one hand, serves as a reminder that the journey of redemption was not devoid of any struggle at all, nor will it be in the future. It helps us to see how that God has triumphed and will triumph at the very end. Obadiah reminds us that all culminated in Christ and he will inevitably prevail in the end as a kingdom will be his. In essence, Obadiah provides a beacon of hope for God's people. Why, at the same time, offers a caution 
to those on the opposing side. The title of our sermon this morning is, The Kingdom Shall Be the Lord's. Brothers and sisters, I would like to introduce us to Obadiah. The key words for our worshippers in training today is kingdom, Edom, and vision. You notice the rhyme in there. Kingdom, Edom, and vision. The sermon is organized into three major points. And these points actually are focuses on the thematic structure of the book itself. From verse 1 to 9, that we have read, we see God's judgment on the kingdom of Edom. Verse 10 to 14, we see the reason for this judgment. And finally, verses 15 to 21, we see that the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Then we'll look at some applications. So consider with me the very first point this morning. God's judgment on the kingdom of of Edom. The book of Obadiah opens with a distinct vision, one that is very, uh, is a vision, a divine revelation exclusively given to the prophet. However, this is not just a general prophecy, but it centers around a particular nation known as Edom. Now, to fully understand the significance of this, we must turn to Genesis 36 verse 1 where it reads that these are the generations of Esau that is Edom. Now this is crucial to connect this together. Now this crucial connection established the, that Obadiah's vision does not concern just a distant foreign nation, a nation that is not known to Israel, but rather it is a nation familiar to God's people. Who is Esau or who was Esau? He was none other than Jacob's brother, sharing an intricate bond that extends beyond mere kinship. Both brothers experienced remarkable transformation. Jacob became Israel and Esau became a nation called Edom. So Jacob's name was changed, Jacob's identity was changed, Esau's identity also changed as it became a nation. The very circumstance of their birth, marked by a struggle within their mother's womb, foreshadowed the complex relationship that they would have. In Genesis 25, we saw that the Bible says the children struggled together within her womb. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? And Rebekah went to inquire of the Lord. And they said, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now this intricate interplay of history, lineage, lays the foundation for comprehending God's judgment on Edom. It underscores how this judgment is not only a divine response to the actions of Edom, but rather there is a personal issue here. One 
that resonate with Obadiah and the Israelites on a profound level. Esau sold his birthright. Jacob stole his blessing. Esau hated Jacob and promised to kill his brother after mourning his father's death. Though they met decades later, though they met years later, Esau running to meet Jacob and embracing them, embracing his brother, the hatred wasn't over. As we've seen historically through the life of Israel, the hatred was still there. Now, knowing that Esau or Edom was Jacob's brother, the question now comes, why this judgment? Why was Edom judged? Now, first and foremost, it is important to note that this judgment is from the Lord. This aspect holds profound significance in our comprehension of what we're going to see following and what role Edom played in Israel's life when Israel left Egypt. We're not merely witnessing a tale of two nations between uh, Jacob and Esau in Rebekah's womb. Nor are we confined to the narrative of an elder brother harboring animosity towards his younger brother. Instead, this is what is going on. We stand witness to the seed of the serpent opposing God's salvation for his people. It is the kingdom of this world raging against the kingdom of God. This strife did not originate from Esau. Similar to Esau's action, we find parallels in the story of Cain, who harbored hatred towards his brother and killed his brother. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 designates Esau as an unholy individual. Similarly, John told us in 1 John 3 verse 12 that Cain is of the lineage of the evil one. He's saying that Cain is of the offspring of the evil one. Although the offspring of the evil one has been, inf- has been inflicting pain upon the lineage of the woman throughout history, it is essential to recognize that this conflict transcends beyond boundaries. It's not about the border of Edom and Israel. This is not a border dispute. Instead, it represents an assault on the very image and the glory of God. That is why the vision of Obadiah is very important. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us bust their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The busting of the bonds apart and the casting away of the cords are actions taken in history against God's people. Now what David is saying here is this is that all the actions taken against Israel by the Philistines, 
by the Babylonians, all of these actions are against the Lord and his anointed. So the battle belongs to the Lord is what the beginning of Obadiah's vision tells us. And the first half of this book, we see that he kept on saying, I, I, I. And that tells us that all that Edom has done, though physically it is against Israel, but ultimately it's against the Lord our God. So look at this judgment with me. Three judgments. We see the first judgment that in verse 2 to 4. In this judgment, we see the humiliation of the kingdom of Edom. Edom boasted of his military power. He boasted of his strong border. Edom boasted of his geographical terrain. Edom was defiant, saying, who will bring me down to the ground? The pride of Edom has deceived Edom to believe that our kingdom is invisible and untouchable. Edom, in pride and trust in our kingdom's geographical location, lifted our kingdom above God's kingdom, and the Lord God of Israel made us small. We see that in verse 2 to 4, where Edom, when Obadiah's vision says that the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. So Edom believed that he is untouchable because he lives in the cleft of the rock. But the Lord God brought Edom down, humiliated Edom because of Edom's pride. Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, and Herod, Herod, rather, all have the same thing in common with Esau. They lifted themselves and placed themselves in this place of authority against God. And what happened? The Lord brought them down. The first judgment we see here helps us to see how that no matter what Esau is doing to Jacob, feeling that he's taking a revenge against Esau, Jacob, it is actually not about Jacob. Edom's attack on Jacob, Edom's attack on Israel, is an attack on the Lord God. And this is what Obadiah introduces us to. The second judgment we see in verse 5 to 7 shows us how that Edom was not just humiliated, he was brought to nothing. All of his resources were brought to nothing. An end to all that Edom was doing. This is a vivid illustration of the extent of Edom's humiliation as we see a degradation in all of our treasures. He went on to say, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. 
would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? Verse 7 says, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those that peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Now, we see in these verses a stark contrast between human-driven humiliation and God's altered decimation. Esau rejoiced in humiliating Israel. But when God stepped in, God brought him low. Thieves, plunderers, and grape gatherers, we see here these three distinct descriptions when he asks, if thieves came to you. Now we see here a description of how that even when thieves come, they can only gather enough. They can only steal enough as much as their storage can carry. But Edom, however, God's retribution against Edom, it's a complete and total destruction. And this is a warning. It serves as a warning to everyone, to all who oppose the will of God. That unlike man, man can do just as much as his ability can take him. But when you stand against God, there's no end to what the destruction will be. The third judgment of the Lord, which sums it up, is the destruction of the wise men and the understanding of Mount Esau. Verse 8 to 9. This is the judgment of the judgments. Because what makes the kingdom of Edom is these wise men and the high places, the place of worship. That gives our false hope of power overall. We see a three-part fulfillment in this verse 8 and 9. First, we see in verse 8 and 9 that this has already been fulfilled. As we see in verse 1 to 7, which tells us that God destroyed Edom. God brought Edom low. Also, we see how the wise men of Edom and the understanding of Mount Esau was brought low in Christ. That on the cross, Christ brought the wise to low. On the cross, he destroyed the wise. In his death, he brought down the understanding of Mount Esau, leaving the mighty in dismay. And also, in the future, we see that in the day of the Lord, the wise men, and the understanding of Mount Esau will be brought low. Now, what does this mean for us? First Corinthians 2 1, Paul says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to you, to us, wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Esau boasted in his wise men. Esau trusted in the, on his mountain. 
and the Lord brought him low. Now, this brings us to our second point of consideration this morning, which is the reason for God's judgment. We've seen how that God judged Edom. Then why did God judge Edom? Verse 10 to 14, read with me. Because of the violence done to your brother, Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Verse 10 to 14 explains Edom's crimes. He lays bare Edom's transgressions. Verse 10 to 14 meticulously detail the violence against God's people. Edom callously disregarded his brother's plight during the times of calamity. Edom rejoiced in Jacob's downfall and shamelessly exploited his brother's vulnerability. In a manifestation of enmity, Edom not only aligned with Israel's adversaries, adversaries, but actively participated in the plundering of Israel. These verses unveil a broader scheme employed by Edom to thwart the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. The intent was to stop. The intent was to annihilate. The intent was to obstruct God's divine will that there would be no remnant, no remnant in Israel. So verse 10 to 14 vindicates the earlier judgment we see in verse 1 to 9. Verse 10 to 14 upholds to us that God is a righteous judge and that God will judge the wicked. Edom's retribution corresponds to its actions. Edom reaped what he sowed. Now, verse 12 to 14 is a very interesting uh, passage, verses in this passage. We see here in this vision, it's like a rhetorical statement or question. But do not gloat over the day of your brother. Do not enter the gate of my people. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Now, this is not God asking Edom a question, but rather stating what Edom did. Edom stood at the gate of God's people in the day of their calamity. Edom stood there to make sure that there is no remnant in Israel. This brings us back to Psalm 2. When David said, why do the nations rage? The book of Abadiah gives us the picture of the raging nation. How that Edom not only orchestrated a scheme, but actively was, in invo- was involved in taking out Israel. 
said, do not gloat over his disasters in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. We see the extent of Edom's actions against Israel. And throughout history, we see the extent of the kingdom of this world, how they rage against God's kingdom. As we see in the last couple of months, how in the book of Acts, how the kingdom of this world rages against the expansion of God's kingdom to cut it off from the face of the earth. But in their raging, in their plot, in all of their scheming, there's one thing that they left out. There's one thing that the kingdom of this world will never understand and they've never understood. That an assault against God's people is an assault against the Lord God. And he's a righteous judge. He will judge righteously. What Edom got was a righteous judgment. For some of us, I might be questioning, why would God bring him this law? I think that's a wrong question to ask. I think the question should be, why will man dare raise his head against the Lord God? Why will a man think that he can stop God? Why will a man ever think that he can obstruct God's divine will? Why will a man ever think that he can stand against God's will? That's the question that should be in our minds. For those who are on the other side, for those of you who do not know the Lord God, and you read this, and you're enraged and angry, I'll caution you this morning that your anger should be directed towards your sins, not towards the Lord. Because Edom reaped what he sowed. And but that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the vision. Because one thing is so important here, that the attack is against the Lord and his anointed. The attack is against the Lord and his people. And so this brings us to our final point this morning, which is the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Finally, verse 15 to 21, rather, shows us that the vision of God to Obadiah is not only about the indictment of the kingdom of Edom, but also the vindication of God's people and the establishing of his kingdom. Goes what he writes about, about God's kingdom. He said God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. In the vision of Obadiah, we see a shift from historical 
verse, 14, verse 1 to 14 to an eschatological verse 15. He said, he began verse 15 by saying, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. The nations are raging now. Edom is siding with the nation to toward God's, to destroy God's plan. But the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. And this is what to expect. So verse 15 to 14 helps us to understand what to expect in that day of the Lord. Historically, God has brought Edom low. Historically, God has established his people. They are in their nation. But that is the already but not yet. That is a partial fulfillment of that kingdom. But this is what's going to happen on the day of the Lord. The first thing we see here is that there's going to be a restoration of true worship. There will be a restoration of true worship. No longer will it be in Mount Esau because Mount Esau had brought low. No longer will it be even in Mount Sinai. Yes, Mount Sinai, God came down and spoke to his people. No longer will it be even the physical Mount Zion. But that is to point us forward. Because true worshipers is what the Lord seek. And he will restore true worship back to his people. And the kingdom shall not be shaken. Hebrews 12 tells us, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, describing Mount Sinai, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even, even, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. He said, but you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the true kingdom, that this is the kingdom of God. And the first thing we see there is a restoration of true worship. The second thing we see there in verses 15 to 21, we see in this vision, it says, for as you have drunk, speaking of, Israel, speaking of, uh, uh, of Edom, on the holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have be, never been. In verse 17, we see the Mount Zion being described. That there shall be those who escape will be there. It shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their possession. So we see a possession. We see a restoration of worship. 
and we see a possession by God's people. That there will be a possession. Just as there was a physical possession of the land, there will be a return of the exile to their own land. Obadiah tells us that there's going to be a finer possession of God's people of the kingdom of God. Now, but that was probably written in the first half of the Babylonian ex- exile after like 586, 586 BC when Jerusalem fell to Babylon and before, definitely before 553 BC, which is when Babylon attacked Edom itself. We know that there was a return to Jerusalem that was led by Ezra and Nehemiah. So similarly, Obadiah is helping us to see that come the day of the Lord, irrespective of wherever you stand, whether you are pre-armil or post-armil, whether you are a dispensationalist, I don't know. I don't care, actually. What happens is this. There is a spiritual possession in Christ Jesus. No matter where you stand, there's going to be a spiritual possession in Christ Jesus. And Paul tells us that there is one already. In Ephesians 1, he said that in him you also, you, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So there is a final possession on the day of the Lord. And that's what Obadiah's vision is showing to us. That on that day of the Lord, there will be a restoration of true worship. There will be a possession by God's people. Now, but Obadiah, we see a something strange here. It shifts from the house of Jacob and includes the house of Israel, the uh, house of Joseph in it. Why? Probably because... What Edom or Esau did to Jacob is just similar to what Jacob, the sons of Jacob, did to Joseph. So, but that is helping us to see how that just as the Lord God lifted Joseph and set him. So that Israel can have, can be in safety during the famine. Just as that, the Lord will lift his people up. And that brings us to that verse in verse 7. That explains the saviors and the deliverers there. Now we have no details of who the saviors are. But we know that the Lord God appointed them. And at the same time. We know this for sure. That the Lord will lift his people up. So the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph being used, being seen here in this vision is to remind us that the Lord will lift his people up. Finally, Abadiah's vision ended with a bold statement. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. 
all of Edom's hatred, all of Edom's schemes, all of the attack, all of the callousness, all of this wickedness, all of Edom's hatred cannot stop the plan of God. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Revelation 15. Then the seventh angel, Revelation 11 rather, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. In, verse nine, in Revelation 19, we see a similar thing. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his, judge, for his judgments are true and, judge, and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servant. Judgment, salvation. God's glory in salvation through judgment. What does this mean for us today and tomorrow? A quick applic- some applications here. Yeah, we see in this vision that Edom clearly is the kingdom of this world. The people of the world. The kingdom of this world or the kingdom of darkness is just simply the worldly people living in darkness under the rule of the prince of this world. There's no sitting on the fence. You are either for the Lord or against the Lord. If you are not, sta- if you are not saved, you are still living in sin. You are not on God's side. I didn't say that. The Bible said that. Like Edom, you are living in rebellion against God and against his anointed. Edom is the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world rather is Edom. In all his schemes, in all his attack against God's people, all of those attacks, against God himself. So if you are living in sin, it's personal, you are living in rebellion against God, just as Esau did. For nations who are rising and coming up with laws and things to persecute Christians, brothers and sisters, They are doing what Edom did. And we know how Edom ended. An encouragement for us as God's people. That though the kingdom of this world stood and and supervised our persecution. Though the kingdom of this world rage against us, 
though the kingdom of this world schemes and they continue to scheme against us. This is hope for us. That God is on our side. Though it might not seem like things are the way we want it to be. Though we may be on the verge of despair. Like Israel was when Edom stood against them. Let us be reminded that we are God's people. And we are in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And at the same time, I want us to be reminded that we are God's people and we will be in God's place under God's rule and blessing. The kingdom we proclaim today will be part of that kingdom at the very end. The kingdom that we have been proclaiming since the beginning of this year as we, go through, as we are going through the book of Acts. Brothers and sisters, it is not far away. It is near. So do not lose hope. It is near. The day of the Lord is near. That perfected kingdom will come and we will be part of it. So rejoice. Strange. I say rejoice. Yes, rejoice. Rejoice. Not the fact that you are saved. Yes, a good thing to rejoice in to be, that we are saved. But rejoice. And the one who saved you. Because he will hold us to the very end. And that perfect kingdom, that kingdom shall be the Lord's. Though the nations rage, though Edom rise against us, though the people of the world come against God's people, the end is sure and certain. And I'll plead with you here, if you are not part of God's people, if you are not born again, God is a righteous judge. You will reap what you sow. And I plead with you today, come, come to light. Come, come to God. All the raging, direct that raging to your sin. Rage against your sin. Not against the Lord. Come, come to the Son. Come, come to God's place. I bid you come, come under God's rule and blessing. Fall to the feet of the sun. Kiss the sun. And I tell you, he will smile on you. Amen.